Today is uh, the day before, as the clocks are reminding us right now, uh, the day before Independence Day. Independence Day, which says so much about America and about Americans. Um, the, the idea of independence is, is not only an idea of, of separation from a former country to begin a new one, uh, but it's also about the separation from you know, between one individual and another. Each American is independently going about their pursuit of you know, individual happiness. What one word do you think defines Americans more than any other? It'd have to be freedom, right? Perhaps more than anything else, we think freedom. The land of the free, the home of the brave. But those words evoke very different thoughts in the mind now uh, than they would have in the year they were written back during the War of 1812. Now, freedom means freedom from constraints. Uh, be true to yourself. Be you. Be who you are. So it's not simply the independence of a new nation from its mother country, uh, but also the independence of the individual from any imposed constraints. This concept of freedom then applied to religion means that no one should impose their religion on you. You We're free to choose whatever we want. And God, as we conceive of it, him or her, um, should play by our rules. He should be open to being chosen if we want to choose him or tolerant of our decision if we reject him. It's only fair that we choose. But this is not quite how the Bible portrays the situation. Uh, Despite Americans' idea of individual autonomy and freedom, uh, the Bible says that humans are in bondage, bound to sin, not able, not free to seek God. As Paul says, no one seeks for God. But God, because of his grace alone, seeks for us. So this idea of grace alone, sola gratia in Latin, is one of the five solas, um, which I think started last week here. You're going through them, and they have lots of historical background. So let's begin uh, with some of that historical background. The idea that we are saved by grace alone has a long history in Christianity If we were to trace the roots down as far as they'll go, we find ourselves um, back at a a theological conflict between two men, one named Augustine and the other named Pelagius. And it all started uh, with this simple little prayer that Augustine had written around the year 400 AD. Augustine wrote these words, Give me grace, God, give me grace to do as you command and command me to do what you will. Well, when Pelagius read those words, he understood correctly that Augustine uh, was implying that humans are incapable of obeying God's commands unless God first grants them the ability to do so. Grant us to do what you command. So Pelagius strongly disagreed with that idea. He believed that the very fact that God would command humans to do something implies that we must have the ability to obey God's commands. We don't need God's grace to help us obey. We simply need to exercise free will to do it or not. So the question was, how does one obey God? And this is where Augustine and Pelagius disagreed. But behind that disagreement, uh, there lay another disagreement. They had different opinions about the nature of humanity. Augustine argued that ever since Adam ate the fruit in the garden, that humanity was locked into corruption. 
And it's not just that Adam fell, but we all fell in Adam. So Augustine says, the sin which they, Adam and Eve, committed was so great that it impaired all human nature in this sense. That the nature has been transmitted to posterity with a propensity to sin and a necessity to die. A propensity to sin and a necessity to die. So according to Augustine, Adam doomed humanity. When Adam fell, we all fell. On the other hand, uh, Pelagius said that when Adam fell, only Adam fell. So after Adam, then, Pelagius said, we are all still free to make our own decisions, whether we will obey God or not. Well, Augustine and Pelagius then had this pamphlet battle. They started issuing pamphlets back and forth against each other, uh, proceeding with this argument. Eventually, very early in the 5th century, uh, several church councils were called, which found Pelagius uh, to be denying the clear teaching of Scripture. But even though the teaching of Pelagius was officially condemned, it was never actually uh, eradicated from the church. The church in every generation has suffered from some form of Pelagius' teaching. In fact, in the thousand years between Augustine and Martin Luther, the official theology of the church had drifted somewhat away from Augustine's position and more toward Pelagius' position. So Martin Luther comes on the scene around 1500, over a thousand years after Pelagius' teaching had been rejected in those church councils, and Luther's theological discussion was with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the church was arguing that grace could be infused to people, could come to them as they performed certain actions, like going to Mass and participating in the Eucharist. In other words, people could simply exercise free will to do good works and thereby earn the grace of God. Uh, But Luther denied that humans have any capability to do any kind of work good enough to earn God's grace. So Luther, in Bondage of the Will, which Chris referred to earlier, says um, that the will of a human being is like a beast standing between two riders. He says, if God rides the beast, it wills and goes wherever God wants it to. If Satan rides the beast, it wills and goes wherever Satan wants it to. He goes on to say, nor can it choose to run to either of the two riders or to seek him out, but the riders themselves contend for the possession and control of it. See, Martin Luther was insisting that when it comes to salvation, we don't make the first move. We don't seek out the rider. Our will doesn't choose its own rider. Rather, God gives the free gift of faith so that we might believe. If anyone does what God commands... It is because, as Augustine said, his grace and God's grace alone has enabled him to do it. So the debate between Augustine and Pelagius was was resurrected between Luther and the Roman Catholic Church. Other reformers of the church uh, around Luther's time and afterwards agreed with him that grace alone uh, enables man to obey God. John Calvin systematized these truths and wrote them down. From this history, we uh, draw two significant doctrinal truths. The first of these two truths is called original sin. The doctrine of original sin says that the sin of Adam and Eve touched every future member of the human race. So simply put, we're all infected. We're all corrupted and guilty. 
Sin is a precondition of human life. It's hardwired into our DNA. We're born this way with the whole cluster of psychological, relational, and spiritual sicknesses that proceed out of the original infection. And part of that sickness uh, means that we are, we are spiritually sick, that no one looks to submit their life to God. We're not seeking for him. You may know people who have done a sort of scavenger hunt through world religions, but interpreting that kind of thing through the lens of original sin, we might consider whether even those searchings are aimed at self-improvement rather than self-abandonment to God. Humans are not seeking God. We are corrupted from conception. That's original sin. The second doctrinal truth is called monergism. Monergism. So that word comes from monos, meaning one or alone, as in monogamy, and ergism, meaning ability or working, something like energy. So monergism. The meaning of monergism is that God alone initiates with people. God alone initiates with people. He moves unilaterally in the hearts of people who aren't seeking him in order to cause them to seek him. Paul reminds the church in Rome, in these words I've already mentioned, no one seeks for God. So if that's true, if no one seeks for God, then how is it that some people end up finding him? Just accidentally bump into him on a dark path? No, Paul says for anyone who knows God, the way they came to know him is that God turned the lights on. They were sitting in a dark room and happy to be in the dark, and they weren't looking for a light switch. And God graciously turned the lights on. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Corinthians, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God turned the lights on, and that is monergism. God alone working. So the idea of grace alone has something to say about God and something to say about us. About us, that we are dead in sin. About God, that he is full of grace. So where do we see this in the Bible? Because I know that you're not here this morning to um, simply hear a lesson in church history and theology. You want the words of God Where do we see this in God's word? Let's go to Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, the very place where Martin Luther learned these exact truths 500 years ago. We'll look at Romans 5, 12 through 21. We'll begin just by reading verse 12. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, Because all sinned. So man is dead in sin. Through one man, the disease of sin entered the world, along with its certain result, which is death. But Paul isn't saying anything new here. Uh, In the Old Testament, King David had plenty of evidence in his own life of sin. And he said, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Ever since Adam sinned, humans are born in sin. Or as the Puritans put it, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Certainly sin is learned over time. As um, 
As generations proceed, of course, yes, sin uh, progresses. Corruption makes progress. So that slave owners spread racism to their children like a viral disease. And abusive parents create abusive children almost inevitably. And yet sin is even more embedded in humanity than simply learning habits from infancy. Sin precedes habits. Uh, Sin produces habits, not just the other way around. Sin is not only learned over time, but it's also hardwired into us. When someone is habitually adulterous or habitually angry, we might wonder if they were just born this way. Of course they were. We're all born in sin with a propensity toward our own pet sins. But it's not the expressing of what's inside that's needed for fulfillment and salvation. It's rewiring of what's inside. Uh, More accurately, rewiring of the soul. And Paul says, because we were born in sin, we are also dead in sin. Again, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are born in sin and we are dead in sin. We were born dead. Martin Luther Sorry, Martin Lloyd-Jones grew up in Wales. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones became a medical doctor at St. Bartholomew's, uh, one of the finest medical schools in London. He eventually became the pastor at Westminster Chapel, which sits right near Buckingham Palace. Uh, It was early in his physician, in his uh, career as a physician, uh, that Lloyd-Jones became a Christian. The most powerful influence in this direction in leading him uh, to Christ was the simple fact of sin and its presence in the human life. His biography describes it this way. The fact of sin never came home to Lloyd-Jones more forcefully than it did in 1923 when he had to spend a number of weeks reclassifying his chief physician's case histories under their respective diseases. Uh, The physician's notes revealed that perhaps as many as 70% of the private cases he had dealt with couldn't be classified under recognized medical criteria at all. Uh, The basic need was left untreated. For once, Lloyd-Jones saw that the physician's diagnoses didn't go far enough. The real problem, which Lloyd-Jones now saw written large on the case notes, was neither medical nor intellectual. It was one of moral emptiness and spiritual hollowness. That card index was to him what the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones was to Ezekiel. There may have been syphilis on the case notes, but the problem ran much deeper than the disease. There may have been a liver condition, but the real problem was the moral emptiness that drove the patient to excessive alcohol. The growing recognition came to Lloyd-Jones of his own sinfulness, Lloyd-Jones said later, God brought me to see that the real cause of all my troubles and ills, and that of all men, was an evil and fallen nature which hated God and loved sin. My trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but that I was wrong at the very center of my being. Lloyd-Jones had come into contact with what the Bible calls dead in sin. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were born in sin, we are dead in sin. So this is the situation. Man must choose God in order to live, yet 
Mankind cannot choose God because we are dead and dead people don't make decisions. Death is not a partial condition. So we we have to agree with the Bible's portrayal of our situation. This portrayal of humanity is dead in sin. And most Christians recognize it as biblical teaching. We're usually quicker to affirm that this teaching is biblical than we are to affirm that it is us. Or we only affirm these truths like abstract philosophical statements. I was born in sin, like David says. I am dead in sin, like Paul says. So we affirm those statements, but are we familiar in experience with our own sin? What are those sins that are most characteristic in your life? You know, what sins do you commit most frequently that harm others? How have you grieved God this week? What sins have you grown so accustomed to that maybe you barely even recognize their presence in your life? When was the last time you did a thorough evaluation of your heart and life before God and considered your sin? Do you have answers to those questions? Are you familiar by experience with sin and brokenness in your own life? If you're unfamiliar with the presence or condition of sin and sins in you, it's not because they aren't there, but because of neglectful ignorance. On the other hand, perhaps you haven't neglected. Perhaps you've been diligent to fight against sin, and so you've, you've uprooted all um, the visible weeds of sin from the lawn of your life, but don't assume that the roots are gone. And just because you can't see the weeds doesn't mean there aren't roots. In fact, as sin is displaced from the life of a Christian, it grows more subtle. You can imagine someone hanging on to the side of a cliff for dear life. The less they have to hold on to, the more firmly they grip whatever they can grasp. And the same is true with sin. As Satan loses his grip, he tightens it. We can expect that as obvious sins fade from our lives, subtle sins grow. For example, in the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, uh, there's a veteran demon named Screwtape uh, writing to his nephew Wormwood, giving instruction on how to tempt humans. So the veteran demon, Screwtape, instructs his apprentice Wormwood in the art of snaring new Christians. He says, catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. We have this kind of danger of sin taking new forms constantly, and we fail to recognize those new forms. And we must work at familiarity with our sin, grow in knowing it by experience. To avoid this danger of talking of our sin as if we're quoting philosophers, I'm broken, I'm born in sinful condition, and yet we really don't feel disgusted by sin. Sin that makes God grieve, and yet we move on to the next thing. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is that they agree with God about sin. I know that I'm sinful, and that the only hope of recovery is in Jesus. I know what you're thinking. Um, We're supposed to be talking about grace alone this morning. Uh, And the only thing we've gotten to so far is that man is born in sin and dead in sin. 
So where's the grace alone? Well, the point of our absolute inability to seek God has to be established uh, in order to see that any salvation that is going to happen has to come from God's initiative. It comes from him alone. Death is an absolute condition. And thankfully, the Bible teaches that not only is man dead in sin, but also, our second point, that God is full of grace. Man is dead in sin, but God is full of grace. And Romans 5 indicates this also. So look back again at at Romans 5, verse 12. You'll see there how it says, "Just uh, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, So you're looking for some completion of that thought, right? Whenever you see a just as, of course, you're looking for a so also. Uh, There's a comparison that's occurring and you want, want to identify both sides of the equation. But Paul takes a little while to get there. Uh, So in verses 13 and 14, he further explains uh, sin and death through Adam. Uh, Then in verses 15 through 17, he begins to describe a free gift. Uh, So let's read beginning there in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So if Adam's gift was the sinful condition and condemnation that comes with it, then the free gift from God is undoing Adam's gift. The free gift is the renewal of relationship with God and life through him. And this is exactly what Paul goes on to say. So now that he has described the the free gift coming by God's grace through Jesus Christ, uh, so now then finally in, in verse 18, He completes the just as of verse 12 by finally providing the so also. It's taken him a few verses to get there, but look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so he's summarizing, restating verse 12 there, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the comparison is this. Adam committed a trespass. He disobeyed. Uh, Jesus Christ committed an act of righteousness. He obeyed. And just as Adam's trespass introduced a virus that spread to all humanity, so Christ has introduced a cure, a free gift available to all humanity. But how is this gift received? The virus of Adam is not received by choice. It's received by birth. Simply by being conceived, sin is contracted. There's no choice in the matter. But the gift of life in Jesus Christ is different. Paul calls it a free gift. And who receives this free gift? 
Notice in verse 18, he says, it is for all men. Again, in verse 19, it says, the many were made sinners and the many will be made righteous. It sounds like as many as were made sinners are also made righteous. But that can't quite be right, can it? Not all are made righteous. That's universalism, and this is the verse often cited for universalism. We might ask, how is the discernment, the discretion, the distinguishing made between those who receive and those who don't receive? Well, it's at this point we have to return to a verse I haven't read yet, verse 17. In verse 17, Paul says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What must a person do to experience death through Adam? Simply be born, right? But what must a person do to experience life from Christ? Receive. You must receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. The gift comes to any who will receive it, who will embrace it by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's description of life as a free gift leads us to another passage, one many of you probably know well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where Paul is writing to another church, and he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul here specifies what the free gift from God is. The free gift is salvation that is received by faith. So the faith that leads to salvation and the salvation that result from faith, together, faith and salvation are by grace alone. They are the free gift from God, meaning that the decision is from God. If you are a Christian, whose decision was that? Well, Jesus says, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if, if you were born, just born, whose decision was that? Well, certainly not yours. The decision was made by the one who gave birth. And Jesus says the same thing is true when it comes to being born again spiritually. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And God chooses whom he will draw. So if you're hearing from God's word this morning, If you hear this offer of God's free gift, that means God has drawn or is drawing you. You know, the news that we are broken to the core, but that God through Christ has brought a cure of forgiveness through Christ's righteous life, this is grace alone. God made the plan. God sent his son. God draws the sinner. God forgives those who receive this message. God is wholly responsible for salvation. So the decision is his. And yet, the decision is yours. We must receive this gospel for the forgiveness of sins. 
Thank God, though, that nothing remains to be done by us. It is completely finished. Which means that for the Christian long dominated by seemingly unconquerable sins, receive his work. Receive his forgiveness. Know it anew this morning that his mercies are fresh for you today. And for the seeker who can't choose between Christianity and other world religions, think of the freedom that's found in this truth. Giving up freedom and autonomy is truly liberating. There is no work left to be done for salvation. No work remains. It is done. We simply acknowledge anew every day that we are broken and in need of grace. And as Paul says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These are truths that should lead us uh, to humility and to worship. So let's bow our hearts in humble prayer and thanksgiving and worship as we've considered these truths. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that you would design a plan from before the foundations of the world. You had chosen to glorify yourself by saving people from sin. We confess again today, as is true every day, we have ruined your good creation. And so we have to give thanks that you chose not to scrap it, but to redeem that which we had ruined You designed the plan. You sent Christ. You have demonstrated grace in every way. So for those of us whose eyes are open to this truth, would you impress on our hearts in indelible words that reminder of your grace. For those whose eyes have not been open to this truth, Father, would you open eyes to the profoundly liberating grace that you have demonstrated for us in granting forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We're thankful, we're bowing before you, responding in thanksgiving to these words because of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.